Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. It's time for Brewing After Hours with Sarah Flora. Hi, I'm Sarah Flora. You may know me as Flora Brewing on Instagram and YouTube, where I dive into the technical aspects of making beer. My new podcast, Brewing After Hours, is going to take a different look at the history and stories behind beer. I'm going to bring you a story a week, as well as conversations with homebrewers and professionals in the industry. And of course, we'll be cracking some beers along the way. Welcome to Brewing After Hours. I'm Sarah Flora. We have a special episode today about one of my favorite topics, drunk animals. This is part two of our series on the science of animals getting drunk off fermented fruit. Our first part of the series was episode six, and I chatted with Dr. Marika Yaniak, a molecular biologist and anthropologist who studies how primates, bats, and other mammals digest their food. We debunked the myth that elephants are too large to get drunk off fermented fruit, and we discussed why vervet monkeys keep stealing cocktails from their local bar. For this episode, we're talking with biologist and Discovery Channel's Expedition X host, Phil Torres, who also has a great YouTube series called The Jungle Diaries. So stay tuned for my interview with him, but first, let's get into some stories. To kick off, we're headed to New Zealand, where a pigeon of the region has received the title of the drunkest bird in the country. It was also voted Bird of the Year in 2018. During the summer, when rotten fruit is more prominently found in the area, the birds swoop down and gobble them all up. In fact, they eat so many and get so drunk that they are taken to wildlife centers in order to sober up. In London, a four-year-old potbelly pig named Francis Bacon, amazing name, was supposedly banned from the Conquering Hero pub because she was stealing pints and bar snacks. The pig's owners and also landlords Vicky and Ian Taylor Ross ended up having to put a lock on the bar to stop her from stealing crisps. In 2015, a story circulated about a gorilla getting drunk off fermented bamboo after he punched a wildlife photographer. The photographer claimed that the gorilla must have eaten too many fermented bamboo stems, hence resulting in being intoxicated. On smithsonianmag.com, Joanna Lambert, a professor of biological anthropology at the University of Texas at San Antonio, stated, The suggestion that these gorillas were drunk from fermenting bamboo in the stomach is misleading. They just don't have that kind of stomach. A more possible scenario is that the gorilla was high on sugar, since bamboo contains a lot of sugar. So why did the gorilla punch the photographer? The likely cause was probably just because the photographer was invading the gorilla space. Now, who has the highest alcohol tolerance? Well, here's a hint. These creatures of the night can be found in caves. Yes, bats. A study was conducted in 2009 on 106 bats from six different species in Belize, 
and the results were the bats can definitely fly under the influence as if they were sober. We'll talk more about bats, drunk butterflies, tree shrews, the jungle, and lots more with my guest, Phil Torres. Welcome, Phil. Thanks for being on the show. So the science of animals getting drunk off fermented fruit has been interesting to me, and it's now the second time I'm talking about this on my show. Given your experience traveling the Amazon, studying animals and plants, and exploring the unknown in your Discovery Channel show, Expedition X, I knew you would be able to help answer some of my burning questions. So it's great to be able to chat with you. You know, when people need to talk about drunk animals, I'm there for them. (laughs) I love it. It's so interesting. Yeah, it's what's so cool about it is it's actually led to some really interesting scientific studies. Like obviously observing it is pretty hilarious, but but it's really taught us a lot about how animals metabolize different things, the ecology of these animals and why some evolved to be able to tolerate alcohol and others simply can't, even though they're way giant, like a shrew versus an elephant, for example. So it's led to really interesting studies in that way. It's even reflected on us as humans and where we fit in all that and why we can drink some, but not a ton like some of these other animals. But uh, it's, it is cool. And then even diving into like the, the ecology of it, when we're talking yeast, you know, to, to do all of this, it's, there's always a yeast involved. And so sometimes they have their own ulterior motive as well, in addition to this plant, this fruit that's fermenting, and the animal that's getting drunk off of it. Let's be honest, yeast gets around. Yeah, I actually, I read a quote by, um, I think it was a beer archaeologist that said yeast is the most successful organism in the entire world. Like, it, you just can't get rid of it. It's everywhere. So do you think animals intentionally seek out alcohol? Yes. Now, now, the question is, are they seeking it out the same way we seek it out on like a Friday night when we're like, let's go to the bar or, you know, after work when you just want to crack open a beer and relax? Like, I think for them, usually the alcohol can serve um, two purposes. One, it you could smell it from pretty far away. So a lot of these animals will use it as a cue to know where to go to get some fruit. Um, additionally, a lot of these animals want to eat fruit, but the period of being able to eat fruit, like remember, it's unripe, it's unripe, it's unripe, and then it's ripe. And as we all know, if you watch a banana on your counter, it's like you miss the ripeness just like that. So what happens next? It starts to ferment. It turns into alcohol. So a lot of animals have basically had to evolve to be able to consume alcohol uh, in order to get access to all the goods inside fruit. Otherwise, they can kind of miss out. And that results in sometimes them getting drunk. And uh, for different animals, sometimes it's okay if they get a little drunk. Others, it's like a big deal. So their bodies have evolved over many, many years to be able to tolerate the alcohol. Um, And then when it comes to the drug aspect, I mean, I'm drinking coffee right now. Coffee has caffeine in it, which is technically a type of drug. And this is a great example because they found that, um, you know, for example, in the coffee tree, Bees get a little bit of caffeine every time they drink that nectar, and it gives them a little bit of stimulation. And what does it do? Same thing for us. It keeps you coming back, right? So some of these drugs have evolved to kind of 
create a little bit of stimulation and bringing something back. It actually can help the bee's memory to know that, okay, that's where I got to go back and tell all my bee mates that we should go here and, uh, and pollinate this. But then there's other times that some of these drugs like nicotine, for example, um, that actually evolved as an insecticide. It evolved within the plant to kill bugs. And then we've kind of co-opted that and been like, actually, some people like using nicotine. So it's uh, it's kind of a, a a messy system out there where it's kind of everything goes and some things get drunk, some things get kind of high and they're just trying to eat some fruit and, and get along and be able to, yeah, basically have enough to eat to make another generation. That's so funny about the bees. I'm obsessed with bees. Like people call me a bee whisperer. They just like end up landing on me. So I just love bee facts. So I saw you did an expedition in Malaysia in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's stated that there are a few animals in the Malaysian rainforest that have been known to imbibe. So this includes the tree shrew, which you actually mentioned, um, which can supposedly ingest a whole lot of fermented nectar from flower buds, and it doesn't seem to have any sort of effect. So in your experience, have you come across any situations like this with the tree shrew or other mammals and actually witnessed this imbibing? So I've witnessed many a tree shrew, and they're, they're pretty adorable. They kind of look like a really skinny nose squirrel. Um, if you've seen Ice Age, that little creature that makes the, the noises, it kind of looks like that in real life. Yeah. Uh, so when I was in Malaysia, I was working with a, a multi, they, they studied all different things. And one of them was, she was a mammal researcher. So she set up these little mammal traps with a little bit of bait. It was like peanut butter or something like that. And then in the morning you go see what you caught. And, um, and lots of times it was tree shrews. And so she took them out and she would measure them. And, uh, you know, take all these different readings on them, weigh them, and then sometimes give them a little tag and then let them off and do their thing. Now, I didn't check any of them if they were drunk, but um, uh, but it's it's a really interesting one because that one plant that these this one species of tree shrew goes to. I mean, yeah, it's equivalent to us drinking like nine or 12 glasses of wine a night, which let's face it, that's that's quite a bit. And for this tiny thing, which. Keep in mind, has one of the best brain to body ratios out there, better than ours. Like their brain is bigger in relation to their body than we are. So maybe that's saying something as well. But it, uh, they, they drink this nectar and basically scientists found that they, they don't really get drunk off of it and they drink a lot of it. And it's really opened up this world to being like, you know, just trying to figure out how is it that some animals can do this and how is it that some animals cannot. And, uh, so it's it's a weird one. Um, I've definitely seen animals get kind of drunk from fruit, but the nectar itself is strange because nectar doesn't normally ferment in the same way that fruit does. But, um, you know, if you're a home brewer, you know what yeast is. Uh, they actually found new species of yeast inside that plant they were studying as well. And they found that some of these yeast are just really good at turning that nectar into alcohol. So it's kind of this, this relationship where that nectar basically becomes a little bit toxic because it's alcoholic. So only certain animals can pollinate it. Only certain animals can drink that nectar. And, you know, when we think of pollinators, we usually think of bees or butterflies, but mammals can do it too. Bats can do it. Birds can do it. And in general, it, it can work out really well if a flower has a specific type of animal that goes to it nine times out of 10, because 
that means that if it gets a little pollen on its nose, it's going to go to another flower of the same species and put that pollen in there. And that's basically what pollination is, just taking pollen from one flower to another. So if these shrews have evolved to be able to drink this alcohol and get drunk every night, but not feel too drunk, that works out in the favor of the flower because that flower means that like these shrews are having a party everywhere it is. Like they're like, oh, you going to that flower over there? I don't meet you there after work. And it works out really well. And to get that yeast in there that we talked about, they they think it's ants that are carrying the yeast from flower to flower that basically disperse the specific type of yeast that can be found in there that makes that nectar really alcoholic that then the tree shrew comes and drinks and then we sit and talk about. So it's it's this really, I mean, I'm always so impressed with home brewers because it's so, nature is so complex. I mean, take that one scenario that takes a flower, a shrew, ants, and alcohol. And then, you know, home brewers try to reenact some aspect of that and control it in some way that is absolutely wild out there. So, um, you know, having tried home brewing once and failed, I, I applaud you for being able to uh, mimic what happens in nature that is so honestly fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I like home brewing so much is because there's so many variables that can go horribly, horribly wrong. But then like you can also like find great surprises and things you wouldn't expect, which I'm always making new recipes and I'm like, I don't know how these are going to turn out, whatever. <laughs> so bats can also drink us under the table, apparently. Do you know why they aren't affected by fermented fruit? I know you visited a bat volcano in southern Mexico and would love to hear about that. That was amazing. And keep in mind, it's not a real volcano. It's basically what, what they call it there because it's this giant hole in the ground. It's this giant, there's a cave way down below. And it's like this, it just looks like you're looking into, I don't know, the abyss. And the bats all live down there and they come out every night in this spiral fashion and then shoot off into the sky. And so they kind of call it a bat volcano because it looks like an eruption of bats coming out. There's like millions of them in there. And what was cool is I didn't know why bats fly in a spiral when they left their cave. And it took me a long time to figure out why, why not just go straight up? And what I realized is that the uh, a researcher told me that it's really hard to fly straight up. So they fly slightly up for a longer period of time. And if you can imagine flying in a spiral slowly up and up and up, you know, in the, in the distance way forward, that's, that's flying pretty far, but in the up, which is the most cost intensive then they're not putting in that much effort. So they can all go slowly up and up and then they all shoot out. And where are they shooting out? Generally to find fruits and maybe get a little drunk. Um, and uh, and so that's exactly it. That bats are able to drink us under the table, but not all bats. They've studied some bats in the Mediterranean versus bats in tropical, tropical areas. And they found quite a difference. Why is that? Well, um, it has to do with how quickly they... They are hypothesizing right now. It has to do with how quickly fruits ferment. And when fruits ferment, they become alcoholic. And a lot of these bats, they have to eat so much fruit every night. And like I was saying earlier, fruit's only ripe for a very short period of time. And it also can be challenging to find. So if a bat is going out there and trying to eat a ton of fruit, there's a big chance that some of that fruit will be like 1.5% alcohol, maybe even up to 4.5% alcohol. Like it's drinking a light beer. And um, and they got to be able to tolerate that because they have to fly blind home. That's not easy to do. <laughs> I can't even walk home sometimes. 
Yeah, that always surprises me when we talk about um, animals getting drunk. Like, the animal kingdom is a scary place. And, like, just, you know, we get sloppy drunk. And I'm just thinking about these animals. Like, how are you surviving and, like, being drunk at the same time? <laughs> right. And and honestly, it has to do with it's it's kind of evolution at its finest, where it's this very acute um, you're going to survive or you're not. And so to survive, if you're a tropical fruit bat that eats a lot of fermented fruits, you're going to have to be able to tolerate a lot of alcohol. And you're going to have to, they've, they've studied the genetics of it now and found that they have like multiple copies of, of this gene that we have to be able to, uh, it's alcohol dehydrogenase 4 or something like that, to be able to actually process and metabolize alcohol. Um, and, and some don't, some aren't as good at it. So some species of bats have to be a little bit careful how much alcoholic fruit they do eat in a night and have to kind of balance it with the, uh, you could say like the, the virgin daiquiri. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. You've also gotten to know butterflies pretty well. And I hear that you have a good story about some sloppy drunk butterflies. You know, sometimes butterflies, they, they drink a little bit too much. And so, yes, that's exactly it. To, to bait butterflies in the tropics, you do one of two things. One of them is you just try to make the most disgusting concoction of uh, rotting fish, sometimes urine, and it's, it's so gross and it smells terrible, but butterflies can smell it from a mile away and it's full of all sorts of things that they really love. So that's one type of bait. But then the other type of bait has to do with rotten fruit. And that is like, if you're a, a, a person who studies butterflies in the rainforest, you have your rotten fruit recipe. Like, you know what to do. It's like, oh, I have two mangoes, two bananas, one can of beer. Uh, and sometimes people throw in a little bit of urine too. Again, butterflies can be kind of disgusting. But it, it works really well to attract butterflies. And because they they like being able to drink fallen fruit. And that's the thing, that when when fruit's up in a tree... It can turn ripe. And so there's a short period of time it's good up there, but then it falls to the ground and it starts to ferment. And that actually makes it way easier to detect if you're a butterfly. You have your antenna up top and you're sniffing the air and you can detect that really strong smell of rotting fruit. So if they're going to be able to find that resource and take advantage of it, they're going to drink a little bit of alcohol. And so in my bait traps, you make this kind of funnel type thing and then a little plate below with rotten fruit on it you'll get butterflies going in there and they just feel as safe as can be. And they just drink and drink and drink. And then you can go in there and they'll just crawl right onto your hand. They'll kind of fall sideways a little bit. Like you, you literally, you're just staring at a drunk butterfly. They, they had too much. They, they got too comfortable there sitting on that rotten fruit and just kept going. And they're like, you know what, we can just chill down here until I, uh, you know, work off this hangover and, and move on with my life and fly around the rainforest. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. You're based in Washington now. I noticed on your Instagram, you've been reading a lot about plants in the Pacific Northwest. I have a place in Washington. So I'm really interested in this subject, as well as when it comes to trying to find new plants and fruit to add to beer. Do you have any specific plant species you've been researching that you can share with us that you find really interesting? Honestly, there's there's tons of them. It's What's really interesting here is the Native Americans who lived here, many still do, they they use and, and use the plants in really, really fascinating ways. Uh, you can eat the roots of some, the berries of others, you can use the leaves for this. 
And so that's pretty well documented. And it's in a lot of the, the best books um, out there about foraging local plants and stuff. And so right now in our yard, uh, we've got a bunch of huckleberry growing. And it's like the native species. So it's not like the best for making jams and everything, but we got like some of these huckleberry plants that look like they're decades old. Like the, the woman who lived here before us just did such an amazing job of keeping this forest native and wild and, and beautiful. So that's one of the ones that we're really excited for because we got in the yard, but usually to get to a lot of these berries, you have to go really high up into the mountains. So you got to do a little, little journey. Um, but there's a lot of other ones here too that we've been really excited about. Some are just incredibly common. And once you realize you're like, wait, those berries are edible and you can can make concoctions with them and you can make liqueurs. Uh, it's it's really, it's it's amazing, honestly. Um, the spruce tips and the, the new needles that come out, that's another one that really excites us. And we put that into when we're kind of making our own gin, we'll do that. But that's basically in the spring when all the coniferous plants, the pines and the spruces and the Douglas firs and stuff, when they're growing, they have these really soft needles that come out as the first growth. And when they're softer, you can get a lot better access to kind of the goods inside that really make them have that unique smell and that unique flavor. So that's another one that we're really excited to try because as you get to know, you know, when you first look at a forest, you're like, it's green, there's pine trees. And then you get to know them a little bit better and you say, okay, this bark is a little different. It even smells a little different. I was just up, uh, we were snowshoeing and we went up to this big 400 year old ponderosa pine and it smells like butterscotch. Now, how can you do something with that bark to, to brew with it? I don't know, but that's kind of the challenge that I think is so cool to see how people can incorporate these smells and these flavors and these these complex chemicals you can find in nature into complex flavor in a homebrew. Yeah, some of my favorites that I've always been wanting to, I've just never been in the area at the right time and had time to brew, but the huckleberries, we have them all over our property um, and they're delicious. I, uh, I have this jacket that we use, I would go hiking in and I would just like come home and just have huckleberries all in my pockets and like, these are going to be here forever. Salmon berries as well. I'm obsessed with them. They're, they like line our entire yard. Yeah. Even into getting into mushrooms and fiddlehead ferns. Yeah. We've got, we got plenty of fiddlehead ferns back here. Mushrooms was another one that we've, we've really gotten into and we, we play it safe with the mushrooms. We stick to the easy ones, the morels, the chanterelles. But when we first moved here, first time I explored, like we were like, okay, this is our property now. Let's explore the yard. Me and my brother-in-law were out and he's like, what's that big orange thing over there? And we go, we have golden chanterelles growing in our yard which considering we're, I mean, it kind of looks like we're in the middle of the mountains, but we're pretty close to Seattle. And to have that, we're like, we, we got our own little honey pot right back here. And that's another really fun one to cook with and do. There's just, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. It's, it's very exciting to have just so many cool things outside to learn and to eat and to drink. It's such a magical place. And there's just so many things you can get into in the forests of Washington. It's just, it's, it is like my heaven. I, it's my favorite place in the whole world. You know, I never got that into studying plants until I started learning the ones you can eat. So, I, you know, it's a good way to get to get things up here is to, to eat them first. And then you're like, OK, these are worth learning. And now I'm kind of obsessed with learning all the different plants. Yeah. And there's just so many varieties up there that I, I never even knew existed. 
living in California for so long. And yeah, it's just wonderful. Like Marion berries, that that's like my all time favorite food. <laughs> it's so good. Oh my gosh. They're so good. It sometimes it sounds like people are making up the names of berries. There's one called like an Ulala berry. I'm like, what do you sorry, what'd you say? Like it's yeah, it's just it's pretty great. So when it comes to beer, the industry is obviously, as most of us are trying to find ways to be more sustainable. One way we can do this is by actually locally sourcing and foraging our own ingredients. Uh, Do you have some foraging tips that might come in handy for brewers who have their own little area of forest? Yeah, you know, I would say make foraging friends is is one of the best things that we've done is I've got a couple buddies, uh, one guy, Paul Parker, another uh, Scott Stimson. They're just amazing, amazing ecologists and foragers. And so having friends like that, who I met on Instagram, um, and it's just really cool where you basically just find these people who are talking about these things, love these things. And then you say, hey, can we go for a walk? And these days it is possible to do a socially distant walk. And still point to plants and learn all those things. And it's, uh, so that was, that was incredibly helpful for me. Additionally, I've never been on Facebook so much until recently because there's some really cool communities of like Pacific Northwest foraging group. Um, Reddit too has foraging groups. So finding these online communities has been really cool because you see there's a lot of amateurs like yourself on there putting themselves out there and be like, did I find this? And everybody's like, nah, you didn't, you found this. You don't want to eat that. And so it's, it's encouraging to just see that, okay, you're not the only novice out there. It's okay. Everybody starts somewhere and you kind of figure the ones that are better to start with. No matter where you are, there's interesting things out there, plants out there that you can forage and do cool things with. And so it's a matter of kind of finding the local ones that are the most obvious. And then once you get to recognize those, you're, you're kind of training your eyes slowly to pick up these cues uh, from nature of of what, how to tell one thing versus another. Yeah. Uh, I think having a community of foraging is like so important. Our next door neighbors up in Washington actually taught us how to find chanterelles and have been like just training us on foraging. They've been there for a long time. They know kind of where everything is and like how to make like pesto with nettles, stinging nettles. And I'm like, um, I'm just like covered in a rash now, but you're saying I should eat this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And and what amazing knowledge. Like, I just think, you know, the more we go into this technological age, which is obviously we're reaping the benefits of it right now, we're able to, to zoom and do all these things. So no complaints on, on that end, but I think it's, um, it, it makes this type of knowledge of being able to go outside and make a meal from something that you find just so special and something so worth like your neighbors passed on to you, just so worth passing on because it's just, it, it is really hard to just read a book and be able to go outside and say, okay, this is this, and this is this. It's really challenging most of the time. First time I try to ID a chanterelle mushroom, I even have a photo of it in the guidebook where I was like, look, they're the same thing. And now I look at that photo where I put the mushroom next to the chanterelle and I'm like, they're, they're not. Thankfully, I didn't try to eat that because I was like, I'm just going to wait till I really check in with experts. But it's, it's very easy to make mistakes. Yeah. And especially with mushrooms, I mean, there's like faux chanterelles that don't have the gills running all the way down the stem. And I've been like schooled on like what a good chanterelle looks like. <laughs> 
Yeah, but th- but that's why I think that also adds to why this type of knowledge is so fascinating to pass on because it's like a little secret thing that like you mm-hmm. don't want to get it wrong, but it's uh, it's so it's so fun to do innovative things in the kitchen with it. We're always trying to do new cooking things um, and fermenting stuff, and it's it's just it's a blast. Yeah, what's up next for you? Where are you traveling? So you know, travels are a little uh, stopped these days. I've been doing a lot of domestic travel for the show on Discovery Channel Expedition X. Um, We've got some new episodes coming out in the next few months. And that has been just absolute blast, just kind of taking on these mysteries all over the US. And there's legend and lore everywhere. And then I get to go in as a scientist and try to figure out some kind of explanation. And we look at the history of these things and try to figure out what was happening at the time that this legend picked up. So that's, it's, it's really fun because these stories out there are are, you know, they've been talked about sometimes for generations and generations. So bringing in culture and history and science all into one and have an adventure while you're at it, it's, it's, uh, it's really cool to, to learn those things. And honestly, while I'm on the road across the US, I'm, I'm looking for bugs and nature and, and, you know, doing all that that I can. We found when we were filming in Texas, we found a huge group of chanterelle mushrooms. And we're like, let's get them. And we all, us and all the crew cooked a bunch back at the hotel. And yes, I did confirm the ID with a friend of mine to make sure. Been doing a lot of that, but honestly, uh, this new yard, this new home that me and my wife just moved into. So this is kind of our, our current project right now. We have a bunch of invasive ivy in the yard and some invasive holly. And so we're trying to make this like a, a native sanctuary for all native species. So we're going to get rid of all the ivy that's growing in the holly and do all that and then try to put in some native plants and spread native spores of mushrooms as well. But uh, we definitely have our, our palette in mind when it comes to what species we're gonna be putting in. So we, we love the idea of putting in a bunch of edible plants that once they get you know established here, then it's just, they're, they're growing out there. It looks like the woods out there. So if we wanted to just kind of mimic what you find in nature, but also make it kind of delicious at the same time. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was a blast. I could talk to you all day, I'm sure. Of course. This was so fun. Anytime you need to talk about drunk animals, I got you. Drinking beer, it makes you happy. It makes me happy too. It's truly matter from the guys of Satan. Let's raise a toast, drink it up, sip it down, gallop it too sweet. Thanks for listening to Brewing After Hours on the Believe Podcast Network. Find the show and lots of other great shows at Believe.com. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and rate the show on your preferred streaming platform. A special thank you to Honus Honus, the lyrical genius behind my favorite band, Man Man, who created the song you hear at the beginning of my podcast. Check the band's new album and more at manmanbands.com and at manmanbandsband on Instagram. If you're looking for some homebrewing tips, make sure to follow me on Instagram at Flora underscore brewing or subscribe to Flora Brewing on YouTube. For ad-free brewing tutorials and reviews, plus more one-on-one experience, become a Patreon member. It's just Patreon backslash Flora Brewing. Now, I really need a drink. I'll catch up with you all next week. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder to support your local craft brewery. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. 
Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.